Thank you all very much uh, for being here and for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, so my paper is called Sisterhood and Female Friendship in a 17th Century Verse Miscellany, Constance Aston Fowler's Manuscript Anthology. And um, it's a paper about the social contexts and social functions of 17th century manuscript poetry, especially for women, using the example of Constance Aston Fowler's Verse Miscellany. Um, what I'm going to be arguing is that thinking about the social place and social purpose of literary production helps us to extend the concept of women's poetry beyond merely poems authored by women. And that helps us to consider how poetry was generated very often by dialogue, by collaboration. And I think that in turn uh, helps us to think about forms of literary participation other than authorship, such as collecting poems, selecting them, transcribing, editing, juxtaposing, endorsing, exchanging poems. There are lots of things you can do with poems other than writing them. And these were the activities of Constance Aston Fowler, who, as far as we know, never actually authored a poem, but she was very active in poetic culture and a particular poetic community, as I'll explain. So I'll just spend um, a few minutes to begin with just introducing Constance's miscellany. Sometime in the mid-1630s, when she was probably, we think, in around her mid-teens, Constance Aston Fowler began compiling a manuscript verse miscellany, which is now in the Huntington Library. And she was one of five children of Walter Aston, Baron of Forfar. He was a Catholic, but he enjoyed the favour of Charles I, and the Aston family seat was at Tixall in Staffordshire. Now, Lord Aston had spent much of the 1620s in Madrid as an ambassador there. In fact, while Constance was compiling her miscellany from around 1635 to 38, he was in Spain again, and on this second tour of duty, he was accompanied by Constance's brother, Herbert, and Herbert was one of her main correspondents. Constance exchanged letters and poems with Herbert while he was away in Spain. Around the same time, another big event in Constance's life, around 1635, she had married Walter Fowler, and he was the heir to a neighbouring Staffordshire estate called St Thomas's Priory. Um, that was an established centre of recusant activity. However, according to inscriptions on her letters to Herbert, Constance wasn't yet, as yet living with her husband. Um, instead, she was residing at another Aston house at Colton, not far from Tixall and from her husband's home at St Thomas's. Now, Constance's miscellany contains the hands of several scribes. So most of the poems are in her own hand, which is very often referred to as Hand A. Um, there's another main scribe known as Hand B, and recently he's been identified by Cedric Brown and myself as a Jesuit missioner, William Southern, alias Smith, who wrote a distinctive semi-secretary hand and inscribed Catholic devotional poems into the gaps between Constance's transcriptions at a slightly later date. Now, for the purposes of this talk, I'm not going to talk in detail about Smith's later editions. I'm going to concentrate on Constance's own transcriptions, which form the bulk of the volume. And if we do that, I think we find they offer a significant example of female participation in verse miscellany culture, combining poems by conventional miscellany favourites, such as Ben Jonson and Henry King, with Catholic devotional poems, and with what we might call coterie poems by and about Constance's family and friends. I'm sort of, I, I want to put coterie in scare quotes, and I'll say a little bit more later about why I have kind of uncomfortableness with the term coterie. 
Scholars including Suzanne Trill, Paul Saltzman, Sue Wiseman, Gillian Wright and Margaret Isell have all explored diverse ways in which family and immediate milieu worked as shaping influences upon women's participation in poetic culture. In the case of the coterie poems compiled by Constance, sisterhood and female friendship function both as subject matter and as social bonds created and affirmed by poems. Both acts of composition by Constance's friends and relations and acts of selection and transcription by Constance were social transactions, fashioning identities and relationships within a particular set of social coordinates. These included familial identity as Astons, political affiliation as royalists, class status as an aristocratic or gentry family with an interest in court culture, local identity as Staffordshire landholders, and that identity I think was if anything accentuated by the absence of the head of the family in Spain, their religious identity as Catholics, and their affiliation with a network of friends and relations. There are no full-length poems attributed to Constance in her own miscellany or other surviving Aston sources, although she clearly enjoyed and valued the many poems produced by her literary family and assigned herself a crucial role in circulating and preserving them. Her father had been a patron of Michael Drayton and also wrote verses of his own. Constance's brother Herbert and sister Gertrude were poets too, as were Constance's close friend Catherine Thimbleby, who in the late 1630s became Herbert's wife, and Catherine's brother, Edward Thimbleby. Though Constance may not have composed verses herself, there's ample evidence of her creative gifts in her letters to Herbert, in which she writes fervently of her love for him, her passionate friendship with Catherine, and her support for their courtship. She vividly describes vignettes, such as a dinner at Tixel, where she and Catherine enjoyed conspiratorial exchanges. Constance writes to Herbert, she would sometimes give a look to me as if by chance her eye had so wandered, and then she would steal the prettiest words to me. Oh, she would softly say, that I might speak my thoughts to you. And then again, oh, what worlds would I give? I might possess you but one half hour to myself. It's lovely, you know, kind of novelistic, these little vignettes she puts in her letters. On the outer sheets of her letters, Constance inscribed ciphers and mottos, often artfully written at angles to one another to create pattern and design. On the wrapper of the letter I've just quoted, for instance, she drew a true love's knot, which she used in her miscellany as a cipher for Herbert, and she surmounted it in this case with a crown, her cipher for Catherine, with the inscription, Methinks I see you set this on, to represent the wished-for success of Herbert's courtship. Beneath the true love's knot, Constance wrote in a triangular formation, She is KT, Catherine Thimbleby, the Queen of Sweetness, and curving round the whole design, she inscribed the endearing couplet, Oh, think what a happiness tis that Mistress Thimbleby is. So Constance brought artistic talents to her letter writing, and her miscellany compilation also, I think, was a creative act, deploying personal and aesthetic choices to produce a distinctive and self-expressive literary artefact. Her letters to Herbert frequently solicit poems. Send me some verses, she writes, for I want some good ones to put in my book. Her criteria for good verse included a desire to participate in current fashions and miscellany compilation, as when she included poems generally popular on the miscellany scene. However, they also included assertion of the royalist politics, Catholic faith, and court-oriented aesthetics of her circle, and in many cases acquaintance with and affection for the author and or the addressee of a poem. Constance evidently understood herself to be exercising autonomous taste and literary judgment. 
She was also more than merely a passive receiver of verses. She sent them out to Herbert too, complaining, pray, see how hardly you deal with me, when I have sent you all the verses that I could get perpetually, never omitting the sending of any that I could get that were good ones. She also passed Herbert's own poems on to others. They are much commended by all, as they deserve, and you have gained the English ladies' hearts extremely by them to see you so constant a favourite of their merits. Constance was thus a kind of literary agent, or what's sometimes been called a voucher, using her participation in networks of literary exchange to establish both her brother's reputation as a poet and her own judiciousness as a critic. Aesthetics and affection intertwined in Constance's principles of selection to invest special value in Herbert's own compositions. I have written to you, I know not how often, she chides him, and begged of you most pitifully that you would send me some verses of your own making, and yet you never would, when you know I love them more than can be expressed. The context for their literary exchanges is always Constance's sisterly love, which she frequently and fervently avows. I shall ever be unable to express the true, serious dearness of my ever-constant love to you. As for a number of other early modern women writers, Constance's engagement with poetry was at once constituted by and constitutive of personal intimacy and familial identity. I'd just like to spend a few minutes now to explain my own interest in the miscellany, which Tracy's already um, very clearly um, set out. Uh, just to say a few more words about that, I've been approaching this miscellany from several angles. So one line of inquiry has been to identify the Hand B scribe, the second main scribe in the miscellany, and I've been working on that with Cedric Brown. Um, it had been thought that Gertrude Aston, Constance's sister, was Hand B. But for various reasons, that can't be so. And we think we've identified Han B as a Jesuit missioner, uh, William Southern, alias Smith. Um, this line of inquiry is relevant to today's talk in that the intimacy and affection between Constance and Gertrude was what, what led some scholars to think that Gertrude might be Han B. Um, so it led to that misidentification of the hand. But as I've said, there's plenty of counter evidence that Hanby can't be Gertrude and is probably Smith. I won't go into all of that now, but if anyone wants to ask about that later, I'm very happy to say more about that if anyone's interested. It's been quite a fun um, detective quest, actually, to try and find the Hanby scribe. Secondly, I've been concerned to assert the outward-looking culture of the Aston Thimbleby circle. They've often been represented before in previous work as inward-looking and as a kind of isolated coterie for various reasons, I think, partly because they're Catholic, because they're provincial, because women were involved and therefore their interests are assumed to be mainly domestic. But in fact, they were well-connected at court, they took a great interest in trends in court culture, and I would want to argue very strongly that as Catholics, they actually participated in extensive networks of literary exchange, extending across the counties of England and internationally. So for that reason, I said earlier, I'm a little bit nervous around the term coterie. That's why I'm resistant to using the term coterie, because I think it has some unfortunate um, connotations of being very <coughs> isolated and inward-looking. It can also imply elitism or even triviality. So I've preferred to call them a circle. However, I'm in a sort of actively rethinking state around all of this because we've recently had a very interesting series of seminars at UCL um, organised by some of our PhD students called Rethinking the Literary Coterie, so that obviously directly related to these things I was kind of turning over in my own mind. 
Um, and that's forced me into a bit of a rethink. We had some really interesting and thought-provoking speakers. Arthur Marotti, for instance, suggested that the most useful way to think of a coterie is as an interpretative community, and he's borrowing that term from Stanley Fish. And he talked about, Marotti talked about, how that community may have a social reality. It can be a family, as in this case. It could be an Oxford college. It could be one of the inns of court. Um, a coterie author may write within such a community with certain readers in mind, with an implied shared insider knowledge. And that obviously would apply to the Astons and Thimblebees. However, Hannah Crawforth of King's College London also at one of our seminars pointed out that a coterie can be a rhetorical construct. Coterie writings may construct a desirable insider identity and so they may be declarations of membership of an imagined insider community. Or they may even aspirationally seek affiliation with an imagined insider community. So coterie writing is not merely produced in a communal context, but may also be productive of a communal identity. And it follows that thinking about coteries enables us to think about the textual construction of intimacy. We tend to read coterie writings as traces of real intimacies, but they could also be places where intimacies were made and shaped and even fantasised. Many of the seminars in our series at UCL also foregrounded coterie culture as a useful way of approaching early modern women's literary activity because women were often more active in manuscript than print and also because women did often write in a particular supportive social context such as their family. Um, another example alongside the Astons would be the women of the Sydney family. Much of this thinking about coteries has relevance to Constance's miscellany and offers productive tools for analysing it. So I'm reconsidering my resistance to the term coterie and I will use it in this paper, but all the time with an eye on some of the pejorative risks of the term, which I definitely hope not to mobilise. So I'd like to go on now to talk a little about how Constance constructs some particular relationships in her miscellany, especially her brother, her brother Herbert's relationship with his sisters. At around the same time that Constance was compiling her verse miscellany, Herbert was making one of his own, inscribed with the date 1634 and including topical references running into the 1640s, and that miscellany is now in the Beinecke Library in Yale. At least 70% of the contents of Herbert's miscellany also appear in other 17th century sources, including manuscript and print miscellanies and songbooks, demonstrating his participation in, man in what we might call mainstream miscellany culture. Some are miscellany favourites, such as Sir Walter Raleigh's Like to a Hermit Poor in Pensive Place Obscure, and Sir Henry Wootton's You Meaner Beauties of the Night. They turn up in lots of miscellanies. Others are songs from plays. The predominant, th the predominant themes are love and courtship, with some poems bordering on the obscene. If amazed at beauty's wonder, I presume your breast to touch, or attempt a little under, would you think I do too much? Oh no, no, oh no, etc. is the refrain. Others satirise the inconstancy of women with a casual misogyny. There are political poems too, especially later in the volume, satirising Puritans and parliamentarians. Only one poem in the collection refers to Herbert's family and Staffordshire origins, a rural panegyric on the Lady Southcott's wedding day, which commemorates the wedding of Herbert's niece and locates the celebration at Tixall. 
However, the poem is not in Herbert's hand and appears late in the volume, suggesting an addition after a change in the volume's ownership and use. Otherwise, the miscellany shows no interest in Herbert's family ties or local roots, instead strongly suggesting a young man aligning himself with the court and with London, fashioning himself as a slightly rakish man about town and participating in what we might broadly call cavalier culture. Yet, the Herbert who appears in Constance's letters and miscellany is a devoted brother, intimately bound into the family circle. Among the eight poems by Herbert that Constance transcribed into her own anthology are To the Lady Mary Aston, who was their elder brother Walter's wife, and To My Honoured Sister G.A., which you've got on your handout, is the first poem there. And that's a eulogy to their sister Gertrude. This poem specifically celebrates Gertrude's gifts as a poet and even defers to them. At the opening of the poem, Herbert aptly invokes the muses, poetic sisters, to assist the praise of his own poet sister. And then in lines five to six, he invokes Dunn, aspiring to sing in verse as high as strong-lined Dunn, the soul of poetry, expressed his progress and anatomy. So it's not the masculine persuasive force of Dunn's elegies or songs and sonnets that Herbert is emulating here, but the female-inspired hyperbole of the anniversaries, the progress of the soul and the anatomy of the world. Just as in the anniversaries, Elizabeth Drury's death, according to Dunn, bereaved and reconfigured the cosmos, so Gertrude exceeds earthly praise. It's her own skills as a poet that call forth Herbert's highest veneration at lines 39 onwards. No subject fit for you to write of but yourself. No wit able to comprehend you but your own. To write non-worthy but yourself alone. Herbert firmly sets Gertrude's poetry in a familial context at line 101. By this you tie eternal luster to our family. Gertrude's surviving poems indeed do mainly commemorate family ties and family occasions. A number of Gertrude's compositions appear in Tixel Poetry, an anthology compiled from fam family manuscripts by a 19th century descendant, Arthur Clifford. Gertrude's subjects include on the death of her only child, to her husband on New Year's Day, 1651, upon the return from our friends in Staffordshire, which she writes after her marriage when she lived in Lincolnshire and to my brother and sister Aston on their wedding day being absent. Even her poems on non-occasional themes often form part of dialogues within the family circle, such as to Mr. E.T. who holds self-love in all our actions, which participates in a verse debate with her brother-in-law, Edward Thimbleby. Gertrude then was mainly a poet of family themes. Constance's selection and transcription of poems by Herbert into her miscellany fashions him too as a family poet like Gertrude, emphasising his affection for and even deference to his sisters in a way that's entirely absent from Herbert's rakish self-representation in his own miscellany. Constance was not disconnected from the cavalier miscellany culture in which Herbert participated. She transcribed poems by miscellany favourites such as Herrick, Johnson, Henry King and Thomas Randolph and various anonymous poems which appear in other manuscript and print sources such as Eyes Gaze No More and With Bowed Thoughts Low As This Hollow Cell. While Herbert included an elegy for Francis Villiers, son of the Duke of Buckingham, killed in 1648, Constance included an elegy for Buckingham himself, assassinated in 1628. Both alike are statements of royalist allegiance. 
She was evidently what we might call plugged in to miscellany culture, unsurprisingly since she clearly looked to Herbert as one of her main suppliers of verses. Especially interesting is her transcription of O Love Whose Power and Might Could Never Be Withstood, which, as Adam Smythe has noted, also appears in a number of other manuscripts. Margaret Crumb lists 13 others and in print miscellanies, including The Marrow of Compliments in 1655, Wit and Drollery in 1661, and Folly in Print in 1667. Constance's version omits many of the coarser lines that appear in the printed texts, including A Turd in Cupid's Teeth and I'll Rend Her Smock <coughs> Asunder. Smythe surmises that these emendations to produce what he calls a relatively decorous verse may have been made by Constance herself, and he says they raise important questions about the degree to which Fowler's transcriptions were in fact active, even creative acts, rather than simple mechanisms of duplication. Alternatively, if it seems likely the poem was among those supplied to Constance by Herbert, he may have edited it to make it, as he felt, suitable for his sister. Whoever edited the poem, it illustrates that whether by choice or by compliance with convention, female miscellany compilation proceeded under different principles from those applied to men. This may appear restrictive, yet we also see that the role of miscellany compiler allowed Constance to edit Herbert, constructing him as a devoted, home-centred and sister-worshipping brother rather than the dashing young blade of his own preferred self-image. And I'm just going to um, develop some of that thinking to talk about how Constance sends images of sisterhood and home to Herbert uh, during his absence in Spain. We've seen how Constance's miscellany emphasises the circle of affection formed by herself, Gertrude and the absent Herbert. Among the poems that she sent to her brother in Spain were two by Richard Fanshawe, who was their father's secretary in Madrid and visited the Aston women at Colton, um, the place where they were living uh, during Lord Aston's absence, during a return trip to England in 1636. Constance explained in a letter to Herbert, and this is on page two of your handout, that one of these poems was made in particular to my sister Gat, which was their affectionate name for Gertrude. And um, if you look about two-thirds of the way down the letter, she explains the occasion of making them was this. We had been one evening at Bowles, and when we came in, my sister was opening her hair with her fingers and bid him tell you that she would not curl her hair no other ways than it curled itself till she saw you again. And Fanshawe accordingly wrote the poem, which you see at the bottom of this page of the handout, Celia hath for a brother's absence sworn rash oath that since her tresses cannot mourn in black, because uncut Apollo's hair darts not a greater splendour through the air, she'll make them droop in her neglect. But he goes on to explain at line 21 that despite Celia or Gertrude's renunciation of artificial curling, her hair curls naturally anyway. The poem constructs a relationship in which the three companions in Staffordshire, Constance, Gertrude and Fanshawe, are bound together not only by mutual affection and esteem, but also by their affection for Herbert and his role as imagined reader. Gertrude's vow expresses her love for Herbert. Fanshawe celebrates it in verses as Herbert's colleague and a family friend, and Constance shows sisterly affection in transcribing the poem and sending it to Herbert. 
These four individuals are connected by a web of relationships, and each interpersonal bond in this web is reinforced by the circulation of the poem. Gertrude's golden curling hair seems to have been a notable personal feature, and also received extended praise in Herbert's encomium to my honoured sister G.A., which I was discussing a moment ago. An unattributed devotional poem transcribed by Constance into her miscellany on the passion of our Lord and Saviour Jesus also mentions hair curling and may well have been by Gertrude. The female speaker vividly imagines being present at the scourging and crucifixion of Christ and dwells on her personal culpability for his sufferings. My curious diet hunger to him brought. My foolish joys presented him sad thoughts. My pleasures in vainglory bred his scorns. My often curling weaved his crown of thorns. And this same poem on the Passion concludes, my will and understanding I resign unto the cross and to his crown of thorns and pierced head bequeath all that adorns my useless hair. So this devotional poem shares concerns with Fanshawe's poem and Constance's letter about Gertrude's renunciation of hair curling. All three concern a similar act of sorrow and self-castigation, although Fanshawe's poem and Constance's letter transpose this from a sacred context, as in the Passion poem, to the secular context of love for a much-missed brother, elevating sisterly love almost to a holy cause. Fanshawe's poem vividly evoked for Herbert in Madrid his local roots in Staffordshire. The writings of the Aston Circle were frequently generated by interaction between their local and international contexts. Hence, Constance's accompanying letter, quoted above, further emphasised the domestic and familial. We had been one evening at Bowles. During the same visit, Fanshawe also composed A Dream, which is on page three of your handout. This is a sonnet which imitates Spencer's prothalamion and similarly idealises Staffordshire and sisterhood for the absent Herbert. Spencer's poem, in celebration of the double betrothal of the daughters of the Earl of Worcester, had represented them as a pair of swans gliding down the River Lee, a tributary of the Thames, to join the main river. Spencer had written, With that I saw two swans of goodly hue come softly swimming down along the Lee, two fairer birds I yet did never see. Fanshawe echoed Spencer to represent Constance and Gertrude as a pair of swans, but relocated the scene to the River Trent in Staffordshire. I saw two swans come proudly down the stream of Trent, as I his silver curls beheld, to which the doves that draw fair Venus' team and Venus' self must beauty's scepter yield. In Spencer's Prothalamian, the poet finds in his riverside vision of the swans relief from discontent of my long fruitless stay in Prince's Court. Spencer's is very much a London poem, using the rivers Lee and Thames to create a pastoral idyll within the city. By transposing the vision to the Trent, Fanshawe removes it completely from the city to the country, from the metropolitan to the provincial and parochial, and uses idealised pastoral description to place the Aston sisters in their local setting and recreate this for their brother. Again, Constance's letter to Herbert explains the circumstances of composition. If you just turn back to page two of the handout, um, line four of the letter. She writes about how she, Gertrude, and Fanshawe were all walking in the old hall and looking upon Trent. And I was speaking how you, that's Herbert, used to course your boy Dick about that meadow and talking of many such things. 
But the next morning he, that's Fanshawe, came out with these verses, which I do not think that you will like very well, for methinks they are very pretty ones, if they had been made of better subjects. We made him believe that you should fight with him when he came into Spain again, for abusing your sisters so, in flattering of them so infinitely as he has done in these verses. Home is recreated for Herbert by nostalgic evocation of the old hall with views over the River Trent, of carefree younger days in the meadow, and above all of his paired sisters, personifying his family origins and identity and the affectionate sanctuary that awaits him on his return. Arthur Clifford, um, he's the 19th century descendant I mentioned who compiled an anthology of Tixel poetry. Uh, Arthur Clifford titled his anthologies of his Aston ancestors' writings not only Tixel poetry but also Tixel letters, <coughs> Tixel being the Aston seat in Staffordshire. So Clifford emphatically wanted to identify the family with their ancient seat, with that locale. However, it's evident from Fanshawe's poems and Constance's accompanying letter that in fact the circle's writings were rarely merely local but, but, but were shaped by the separation of family members over long distances. As years passed, these scattered family members would come to include not only Lord Aston and Herbert in Madrid, but also several Aston and Thimbleby women, including Gertrude, who joined the English convert in Louvain. It's largely because they were dispersed that the Astons were so invested in ideas of family and home, so that paradoxically their writings were often most local when they were most international. It's also worth remembering that although until the 1640s the Astons seemed to have been exempted from the usual penalties for Catholicism because of their father's friendship with King Charles, English Catholic gentry families lived under constant threat of sequestration of their estates. Constance's transmission of Fanshawe's poem to Herbert and her composition of the letter enclosing it create and affirm a textual fantasy of home as safe, sure, innocent, unsullied and timeless, a place where memories of past shared happiness and hopes of future reunion converge. Home is here constructed in writing and in the transmission of writing for Constance as much as for Herbert, for sender as much as for recipient. An important ingredient in this textual construction of home was the assertion and idealisation of sisterhood. Gertrude's renunciation of hair curling expressed sisterly devotion. Constance's transmission of poems and letters to her brother maintained sibling intimacy, though physically apart. And the symmetrical pairing of the two sisters in Fanshawe's Swan's poem formed an emblem of the harmony and pastoral tranquillity of home. Spencer's Prothalamian had exploited the aesthetic appeal of female doubles, as had Shakespeare in A Midsummer Night's Dream, when Helena reminded Hermia of their sister's vows, school days friendship, childhood innocence. We grew together <coughs> like to a double cherry, seeming parted, but yet an union in partition, two lovely berries moulded on one stem. In As You Like It, Celia even described her sisterly intimacy with Rosalind as swan-like, we still have slept together, rose at an instant, learned, played, et together, and wheresoever we went, like Juno swans, still we went, coupled and inseparable. Such works created a tradition of sisters or sisterly friends as pleasingly symmetrical and touchingly reciprocal, personifying balance, harmony, serenity, and also pre-sexual innocence. Fanshawe mobilised this tradition in his poem to evoke for Herbert the tranquillity, affection and security of home. 
Constance and her siblings probably knew Spencer's and Shakespeare's idealisations of female bonds. An 1899 sale catalogue of the library at Tixall records a 1611 edition of Spencer's works and a 1632 second folio of Shakespeare. It also included a 1638 edition of Sir Philip Sidney's Arcadia, offering another model of loyal and virtuous sisterhood in Pamela and Philoclea. Moreover, the family owned a manuscript of the Sydney Psalms. Suzanne Trill has shown that although later scholars have sometimes underestimated the skill and scale of Mary Sidney's contributions to these psalm translations, her contemporaries understood them as a true collaboration and joint production between Mary Sidney and her brother Philip. As Trill has discussed, Dunner claimed the Sydney siblings as united by God in shared poetic creation. Two by their bloods and by thy spirit, one, a brother and a sister, made by thee the organ where thou art the harmony. The copy of the Sydney Psalms owned by the Astons included the elegy by Mary for Philip to the angel spirit of the most excellent <coughs> Sir Philip Sydney, celebrating the sister-brother bond. While beyond the Psalms, Mary also collected, edited, preserved and circulated her brother's other works. Constance's situation differed from Mary Sidney's in several respects. Her brother happily was not dead. She did not write compositions of her own and she didn't seek print publication of his works as Mary Sidney did for the Arcadia. Nevertheless, Mary Sidney may have offered Constance an example of the many collaborative, creative and influential roles, not only authorship, that a woman could perform in a context of sibling intimacy and of how sibling intimacy could be constructed and idealised by means of various kinds of literary act. As well as sending Fanshawe's two poems to her, but Constance also transcribed them into her miscellany. Their function then was not merely to project idealisations of sisterhood and home across the ocean to Herbert, but also to serve Constance herself as commemorations of an intimate domestic scene, designations of her place in a network of relationships, and affirmations of her identity as sister, muse, and purveyor of poems. Another poem in her miscellany concerning sisterhood is Upon Castara's and her sisters going afoot in the snow. It's not certain whether this is a composition by the Catholic poet William Habington, who in 1634 published a collection called Castara about his wife, Lucy Herbert, or whether it's an imitation of Habington by a member of the Aston Thimbleby Circle, applying the identities of Castara and her sister, or sisters, the punctuation is ambiguous, to two or three of the Aston daughters, Constance, Gertrude, and their sister Frances. Whichever is the case, this Sisters in the Snow poem certainly sits comfortably alongside Fanshawe's poems on the Aston women and is consistent with the emphasis throughout Constance's volume, not merely on poems inspired by sisterhood, but on the construction and idealisation of sisterhood in poetry. Her transcriptions define the role and identity of sister, elevate sisterhood as a virtuous and idyllic state, and reinforce sisterly bonds. So I want to extend some of that thinking now into how female friendship figures in Constance's miscellany. The Aston Circle enjoyed poetic dialogues, and it was often the women of the group who engaged in this highly sociable form of composition. Gertrude composed to Mr. E.T., who holds self-love in all our actions, as part of an exchange with her brother-in-law, Edward Thimbleby while Catherine Thimbleby composed a reply to William Habington's To the Honourable G.T. Constance also transcribed into her miscellany a female-female verse dialogue between Catherine Thimbleby and Lady Dorothy Stafford. 
Lady Dorothy's parents were Robert Deverer, the second Earl of Essex, and Frances Walsingham, widow of Sir Philip Sidney. So she offered the Astons a line of association back to the Elizabethan court and the Sidney's literary circle. Born in 1600, in 1615, Lady Dorothy married a Catholic baronet, Sir Henry Shirley. He died, and in 1635, she married William Stafford of Northamptonshire, but died herself the following year. Her acquaintance with the Astons is evidenced by Constance's inclusion in her miscellany of two poems by Lady Dorothy and others on Lady Dorothy's marriage to Stafford and on her death. The dialogue is on... It starts on page three of your handout. The first poem in the dialogue is the uh, lower poem on page three. So it's a poem headed upon the LD, that is Lady Dorothy, saying KT, that is Catherine Thimbleby, could be sad in her company. Catherine opens, Madam, you say I am sad. I answer no, unless it be because you say I am so. And then she goes on in line 17 to protest, there is no joy if not by me possessed when in your conversation I can find there be all treasures to delight the mind. The poem at once commends Lady Dorothy's conversation and itself participates in ongoing conversation to conclude at line 27, therefore by these your favours I entreat, you will believe my joy in you complete. The answer poem is on next, the next page of your handout. The LD answer, so the Lady Dorothy's answer. This poem opens, Dear cousin, pardon me if I mistook. I thought the face had been the truest book. And it then proceeds through similarly elegant and complimentary couplets. So at line seven, I feared you sad, because that smiling grace which oft hath joyed me was not in your face. Lady Dorothy thanks Catherine for her commendations, modestly protesting at line 13 that friendship makes Catherine view her as better than she is and is a multiplying glass which enhances the one beheld. She closes by aspiring to deserve Catherine's high opinion of her. But this believe, you cannot favour show to one more yours and will be ever so. In some ways, this exchange resembles other celebrations of sisterhood and female friendship in Constance's miscellany. The closing lines by Lady Dorothy imply similitude and reciprocity between herself and Catherine, and thus sit comfortably alongside Fanshawe's Two Swans poem and the poem about Castara and her sister or sisters in the snow. Yet the parallelism between Catherine and Lady Dorothy is only attained at the end of their poetic exchange and is something that Lady Dorothy concertedly works towards. Margaret Isel and Christine Gerard have cautioned against assuming that literary coteries in which women were active were always sisterly and supportive. There's no reason to doubt Lady Dorothy's goodwill towards Catherine, but at the same time we should be cautious of reading this exchange at face value as a simple expression of friendship conducted on equal terms. Closer inspection reveals that it's underwritten by a distinct hierarchy. Catherine addresses Lady Dorothy twice in her poem as Madam and refers to herself deferentially as your servant, who is unworthy of the blessing of Lady Dorothy's friendship. It's Lady Dorothy who introduces the more intimate term, dear cousin, and concludes her poem on a note of mutual affection and obligation. She is, in fact, condescending magnanimously. 
Lady Dorothy was born in 1600, Catherine in 1617 or 18, and their poetic dialogue was probably composed a little before Lady Dorothy's death in 1636, making Catherine at most 18, while Lady Dorothy was in her mid-30s. Lady Dorothy then writes as a thrice-married older woman, as the daughter of a father, Essex, who was an earl and was mourned as a chivalric hero, a kind of culture icon, as the daughter too of a mother, Frances Walsingham, who was the widow of another literary icon, Philip Sidney, and as a mentor figure rather than a friend of equal status. Equality and intimacy are graciously constructed in her answer poem. She writes at line 21, "'Tis you that have enriched me, for whose sake I did wish to steal from thee." The genre of answer poem implies dialogue and partnership, but what we observe here is not the simple expression of a pre-existent balanced relationship, rather the poem strenuously crafts likeness and regard, mutual regard. The pair of poems taken together constructs female symmetry out of underlying asymmetry. At the same time, Constance's transcription of the exchange between Catherine and Lady Dorothy triangulates the relationship. By copying and preserving the two poems, Constance places herself too within the embracing circle of female intimacy that they form. Lady Dorothy may well have fascinated the Aston women because of her connections with court culture. She was the dedicatee of Changes or Love in a Maze in 1632 by James Shirley, who was favoured by Queen Henrietta Maria. And Lady Dorothy was described in 1633 by Lucius Carey, Viscount Falkland, as one of the fairest, wittiest, and newest widows of our time. In the same year, Walter Montague wrote The Shepherd's Paradise, his elaborate mask of platonic love for performance by the Queen and her ladies. And according to Falkland, Lady Dorothy longs extremely to read it and hath sent to beg a sight of it. The Astons acquired a manuscript of this play, perhaps via Lady Dorothy. According to the 1899 sale catalogue of the Tixall Library, it was inscribed The Lady Pearsall's Book, 1653, probably referring to Frances Aston Pershall, Constance's sister. Lady Dorothy thus connected the Astons to the neoplatonic courtly fashion for idealised love and friendship that was cultivated by Henrietta Maria, and this may have influenced their literary idealisations of passionate and ennobling female friendships and sibling affection. Some of the most remarkable examples of such idealisation of female friendship are in Constance's letters to Herbert in Spain. Perhaps influenced by the court fashion for passionate intimacy, Constance wrote fervently of her love for Catherine Thimbleby, the woman Herbert hoped to marry. I love her above my life and value her infinitely. There was never any more passionate, affectionate lovers than she and I. You never knew two creatures more truly and deadly in love with one another than we are. It's difficult for a modern reader to encounter such passages without thinking about homoeroticism. Clearly, Constance's primary affective bond at this time was with Catherine, while her own recently acquired husband never features in either her letters or her miscellany. Yet, Constance's relationship with Catherine was also triangular in that her adored brother was a constant presence. Constance signs herself to him as your ever most affectionate sister and most true lover, C.F., and explains that while Catherine is the only wonder of this age, you too are dear partners in my heart, and it is so wholly divided betwixt you. She seems to have understood herself as Herbert's proxy in courting Catherine, while at the same time performing to him the warmth and intensity of affection between herself and Catherine. 
Thus, three kinds of intimacy, distinct yet interlinked, are in interplay. Same-sex friendship, brother-sister affection, and heterosexual courtship directed towards marriage. Constance and Catherine bond and mirror each other as female friends. Constance and Herbert are bonded and mirror each other as siblings. Herbert and Catherine bond as lovers. These three pairings form a triangle, or we might like to think intertwine to form a true love's knot, Constance's cipher for Herbert. The knot would be bound tighter by Herbert's marriage to Catherine, which in effect made her a new sister to Constance. The Athens understood sisters-in-law simply as sisters. In a poem to his brother's wife, Mary, Herbert addressed her as ever most honoured sister. While Lord Aston wrote to welcome Catherine into the family, addressing her as good daughter and signing himself your loving father. The roles of friends, sister-in-law and sister merged in this social network, creating a community which valued female agency and was largely held together by female bonds. It was in written exchanges that these female identities and bonds were defined, enacted and perpetuated. The Aston's writings were socially produced where the term social encompasses a number of meanings. These include the Aston's affiliation with the Catholic community, royalist politics and court culture, their sense of elevated class status, and their local rootedness in Staffordshire, always in tension and in dialogue with their international connections and perspectives. They also include various intersecting relationships, family ties, same-sex friendships, and courtship, which not only inspired the Aston's poems and letters, but were also actively fashioned and developed in these writings. Constance's transcriptions into her miscellany both record and create intricate social patterns, including symmetrical and asymmetrical partnerships, triangles, four-way formations, and intertwined knots. Even texts which at first sight look like one-to-one -one transactions often involve third or fourth parties as implied recipients or transcribers, constructing an elaborate geometry of communication and exchange. In this writing and written community, women enjoyed a variety of roles as inspiration, subject matter and addressees of poems, as authors of and respondents to poems, and in Constance's case, as procurer, transcriber, editor, collector, preserver and purveyor of poems. Constance's verse miscellany and her commentary upon it in her letters highlight the diversity and complexity of relations between 17th century women and poetry. They place female identities and relationships at the centre of the Aston's poetic community and thereby foreground sisterhood and female friendship as both productive of poems and produced by poems. Moreover, Constance's transcriptions don't merely reflect social relationships, they create, shape and reinforce them, perhaps even in some cases somewhat fantasise them. This purpose of making social bonds and social identities is present both in acts of composition by Constance's friends and family and in her editorial acts of choosing and juxtaposing certain poems. So her miscellany not merely records a coterie, it also fashions her own version of her coterie, her social milieu and her position within it. It exemplifies coterie writing, not just as an intimate space of textual production, but as a place of the textual production of intimacy.